Welcome. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast, the show that cuts through the fog of war and updates you about the ongoing conflict in Ukraine. With your host, Linnea Hubbard. Don't forget to like, comment and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts. I'm Linnea Hubbard and today is Tuesday, September 27th, 2022. It's been 3,132 days since Russia occupied Crimea on February 27, 2014, and 216 days since the large-scale invasion of Ukraine began. Today's podcast looks at what happened yesterday in the Russia-Ukraine war. The Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War update is compiled by our team from around the world. Today's report includes information from direct contacts in Ukraine and their proxies, Russian Ministry of Defense reports, the General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine reports, Operational Command South of Ukraine, Open Source Intelligence, our in-house team of analysts and geolocation experts, and pro-Ukrainian and pro-Russian mill bloggers and social media accounts with a track record of trying to be accurate. We have one mission, to report the truth, because the truth matters. Let's start our assessment with the current status of the war. First, we assess the Russian defensive lines east of the Oskil River from Hryanikivka to Lozov are in collapse, with Russian forces advancing from three bridgeheads. We maintain that Russian command and control are likely paralyzed due to the lack of available resources, command decisions being rooted through Russian President Vladimir Putin, and the loss of senior staff during the last weeks. Second, We maintain Russia's mobilization efforts are on the brink of catastrophe due to corruption, a lack of preparation, violation of the social contract with the Russian people, and conscripts being sent en masse to Ukraine without vital equipment or training. Third, we assess that dissatisfaction with mobilization is worsening, with harsh criticism expressed openly on Russian state media, although the blame for the Kremlin is being deflected to local commissariats. Fourth, our assessment that the broader mobilization and breaking of the social contract with the Russian people could increase the risk of political upheaval was accurate, with civil unrest worsening in Dagestan. The protests could spill over into other federal districts and republics, with police now beating protesters and directly threatening journalists. Fifth, we assess we are in the mutually assured destruction instability paradox, due to irresponsible language from Dmitry Medvedev, deputy chairman of the Russian Security Council. He admitted that the council believes that global powers will not respond to a nuclear strike on Ukraine because they are too afraid to respond. In our assessment, if this is being said out loud, it raises concerns about what is being discussed behind closed doors. Sixth, We maintain the results of the concluding sham referendums will not change the tactics or strategy of Ukraine or its Western supporters. However, Western nuclear powers have stated they've been forced to take Russia's nuclear threats seriously. Seventh, we maintain our assessment that as the situation for Russian troops in Kherson worsens due to supply issues and battlefield conditions, Russian troops will seek to surrender. And finally, We maintain our assessment that the Russian military in Ukraine is combat-destroyed and has no meaningful way to respond to the ongoing and accelerating collapse.
Let's get some regional updates, starting with the Kherson counteroffensive and Mykolaiv. We've updated the Russian objective to include integrating the oblast into the Russian Federation, along with holding existing defensive lines, protecting remaining lines of communication or locks, those are supply lines, defending Kherson, preventing envelopment on the western side of the Dnipro River, and restricting insurgent activity. A quick errors and omissions here. Yesterday, we reported that Ukrainian forces in the Kharkiv Oblast captured a Russian T-62 tank. We were incorrect. It was captured in the Kherson Oblast. Thank you for your understanding as we cut through the fog of burning diesel fuel and oil on the hot exhaust of a Soviet-era tank. And war, also war, the fog of war. Ukraine continues to maintain tight operational security, with limited information released. In contrast, there was significant intelligence from Russian sources for the first time in almost a week. Ukrainian military expert Olej Donov reported that Ukrainian forces attempted an advance on Oleksandrivka in Mykolaiv and were unsuccessful. We have coded the town, which has been obliterated after months of fighting, as a contested no-man's land. Ukrainian forces shelled a Russian forward operation base, or FOB, in Provdine. Refer back to the video, which we link in our full situation report on Patreon, after watching the Donetsk People's Republic, or DNR, militia video that we'll talk about later. It's a pretty decent comparison of the accuracy between Russian and Ukrainian military units. Pro-Russian sources reported that Russian positions in Ternovipodi, another no-man's land, were shelled by Ukrainian artillery. Confirming that the village is a no-man's land, the General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine, or GSAFU, reported that Russian forces shelled the village too. The Inulets River bridgehead remains stable, according to reports from Ukrainian and Russian sources. The GSAFU reported Andriyevka and Bilohirka were shelled. Russian sources claim Ukraine has re-established the wet crossings over the Inulets River after floodwaters receded. The situation was likely exaggerated as the river crested between 60 and 100 centimeters, that's 2 to 3 feet, above its mean. Photos only showed one crossing was washed out by flooding about 10 days ago. Ukrainian artillery and combat drones continue to harass Russian positions in Davrybrid. A new video showed a Russian tank that based on the explosion, likely had a full autoloader, exploding after a drone dropped a mortar on it. Russian sources reported that Ukrainian special operation forces were operating in the area of Arkhangelsk and shelled Russian positions in Novopetrivka, Lyubomivka, and near Vermivka. Operational Command South, or OCS, reported the Ukrainian Air Force completed 10 airstrikes and ground forces launched 250 fire missions. Ukrainian aviation targeted two ammunition warehouses and two troop concentrations in Bereslav, while rockets fired by HIMARS hit three locations in Kherson. Two strikes occurred in the Korobelny district, and a third hit the ferry crossing built in the industrial district along the Dnipro River. The strike on the ferry crossing caused minimal damage. Russian air defenses shot down something near Komkova Street in Kherson, with pieces of debris landing in a residential area. HIMARS strikes were carried out in Nova Kachovka. Engineering attempts to re-establish the bridge at the Kachovka Dam and three Russian Pantsir S-1 anti-aircraft systems were destroyed. Another barge being used as a makeshift ferry was also destroyed. 
Video emerged of the HIMARS strike in Russian-occupied Skadovsk, which reportedly destroyed a training base for the operation of Iranian-sourced Shahed-136 drones and killed a multinational group of trainers. We observed there weren't any Iranian drone attacks in Kherson or Mykolaiv on September 26th. In Mykolaiv, Tornado S and Smirch rockets fired from multiple launch rocket systems, or MLRS, landed in the center of the city of Mykolaiv. Vitaly Kim, Mykolaiv Oblast administrative and military governor, reported three separate attacks, calling them, quote, pure terror on civilians. The attacks damaged apartment buildings and knocked out water service in parts of the city. Near the Kinburn Spit, Russian forces used rockets fired from MLRS to strike Ochakiv, with the Russian Ministry of Defense claiming to have destroyed an ammunition depot. Ukrainian sources only reported two separate rocket attacks with no casualties. There was no data from NASA Fire Information for Resource Management Systems, or FIRMS. The Russian MOD, that's the Ministry of Defense, described the attack as a, quote, high-precision strike, which is doubtful considering the BM-27 Uragan MLRS launcher is mostly, quote, spray-and-pray. Our assessment in Kherson and Mykolaiv is unchanged from September 11th. We recapped it on yesterday's episode around minute three or four. Let's move on to Dnipropetrovsk and northern Zaporizhia. We've also updated the Russian objective here to include integrating the oblast into the Russian Federation, along with capturing the rest of the oblast, interdicting personnel and equipment assembling for a counteroffensive, breaking civilian will with continued terror attacks, and turning popular opinion against Ukraine by terrorizing the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. The situation at the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant was unchanged, including the Russian MOD baselessly claiming that the plant was shelled for the third day in a row. The International Atomic Energy Agency, or IAEA, has not released a statement since Friday and made no mention of military strikes on the plant or the immediate area during a United Nations meeting today. Nikopol, Markhanets, and Chervonokhryorivka were hit with 90 grad rockets fired by MLRS, damaging homes and a sports lyceum, while knocking out natural gas and electrical service. No one was injured in the attack. A quick editor's note, a lyceum is a specialty school, kind of like an academy, typically for the arts, music, or sports. Russia continues to launch terror attacks on Zaporizhia, with up to 10 S-300 anti-aircraft missiles used for ground attacks landing in the city. At the time of recording, there wasn't information on targets or casualties. One photo showed significant damage to at least one building. A KH-59 air-to-surface missile launched by the Russian Air Force struck the airport terminal in Kriviri, causing severe damage to airport infrastructure and knocking the facility out of service. There were no casualties reported. Now to the Donbass region, starting with southern Zaporizhia. We've updated the Russian objective here to include integrating the oblast into the Russian Federation, in addition to capturing the rest of the oblast, defending the existing line of conflict, and ending the insurrection that is throughout the Russian-controlled territory. Russian forces intensified artillery fire, focusing on the larger towns such as Khulyapola and Orykhiv. Ukrainians suppress and destroy enemy air defense missions are paying off, 
with the Ukrainian Air Force targeting Russian military vehicles and troop concentrations. Pro-Russian accounts claim that the Russian MOD was tricked into believing that Ukraine was preparing a larger counteroffensive in southern Zaporizhia while continuing to report troop buildups are happening behind the main line of conflict. Some assessment here. Since the cards are on the metaphorical table, we have not seen anything that would indicate a Kherson or Kharkiv-sized counteroffensive was being prepared in Zaporizhia. After the Kharkiv counteroffensive, the Russian millblogger community was in a panic, claiming that looming large-scale counteroffensives were being prepared in Orkhiv, Khuliapole, Volodar in Donetsk, and west of Donetsk City. Speaking of Donetsk, in southwest Donetsk, we've updated the Russian objective to include integrating the oblast into the Russian Federation, along with capturing the rest of the oblast, maintaining existing defensive lines, and bringing the insurrection across southwestern Donetsk under control. The DNR militia did not make any claims about ground fighting or successes on the battlefield. They reported that Ukraine completed over 300 fire missions across the oblast, Military leaders stated that their units destroyed two BM-21 Grad rocket launchers and seven units of, quote, armor and special equipment. The GSAFU and Russian sources reported minimal fighting. Artillery fire was reported as heavy at times west and northwest of Donetsk. Elements of the DNR militia tried to improve their positions near Kamyanka, but remained unsuccessful. There was positional fighting and artillery fire in and near Pervomaisky, with no change in the situation. In our full situation report on Patreon, we link to a video from the DNR, you'll need a Telegram account to watch this one, which shows the 11th Regiment shelling Ukrainian positions and at least one armored vehicle. The description states, quote, The enemy takes heavy casualties and flees, end quote. The video, however, shows a different story of inaccurate artillery fire, too much time spent adjusting fire, and Ukrainian troops repositioning. We don't view repositioning to avoid 152mm artillery shells falling from the sky as fleeing. Do you remember a few minutes ago when we were describing the video of Ukrainian troops in Pravdine? This is the video that you should be comparing it to. Pro-Russian accounts claim Ukrainian forces attempted to advance on Marinka, but we question the veracity of the claim. The DNR militia telegram channel loves showing grisly videos of dead Ukrainian soldiers and has multiple combat reporters focused on Marinka. They would have shared it if the DNR had anything better than several artillery shells repeatedly missing a single Ukrainian BMP infantry fighting vehicle, or IFV. Elements of the 1st Army Corps attempted to flank Marinka with another attempt to advance on Pobida, which was unsuccessful. A video from last week showed the Ukrainian 79th Air Assault Brigade engaging Russian forces near Solodke, in the no-man's land on our map. Two Russian MTLB IFVs and a main battle tank, or MBT, were destroyed, and two other armored vehicles were abandoned. The GSAFU reported fighting in Pavlivka, which was not echoed by any Russian source. Pro-Russian mill blogger Rybar continues to claim that Ukraine is preparing for a larger offensive out of Vulidar Pavlivka. Didn't we just talk about panicking about impending offensives? You know what? Never mind. To be clear, the fighting around Pavlivka was probably among reconnaissance units or positional. 
In the Bakhmut area, let's change things up a bit and start with our favorite FSB colonel, wanted war criminal, and Kremlin pariah, Igor Girkin Strelkov, who absolutely lives rent-free in our heads. In a video today, Strelkov accurately explained that private military company, or PMC Wagner Group, is advancing in the, quote, Ukrainian direction, in the shadow of a Ukrainian advance into the Donetsk and Luhansk oblasts. Because of the ongoing Ukrainian advances north and west of Bakhmut, any gains have lost their value. He stated that PMC Wagner fighters are being, quote, wasted, and would be better utilized to reinforce Lehman and Svatov, because if those two towns fall, Bakhmut doesn't matter. Quick assessment here. Once again, we agree with a wanted war criminal. Not loving that. But now that we've agreed with Strelkov, we can move on to the rest of it. We are deep in reruns over here. PMC Wagner, supported by the last combat-ready company of the 144th Motor Rifle Division of the Russian 20th Combined Arms Army, or CAA, attempted to advance on Solidar, which became a disaster. Multiple sources reported the 144th was combat-destroyed, suffering over 50% losses in the failed attack. The 20th CAA joined the 1st Guards Tank Army and the 3rd Army Corps in becoming combat-destroyed just this month. Pro-Russian mill blogger Rybar made a cryptic post about the 144th on September 25th about how the unit will go down in history for gallantly dying for their country when the war is over. Okay, sidebar. In the opening of the 1970 Academy Award-winning movie Patton, a quote he made in 1943 was paraphrased. When leaving Africa and addressing his troops, Patton did say, quote, No dumb bastard ever won a war by going out and dying for his country. He won it by making some other dumb bastards die for his country. End quote. Fun fact, Patton may have paraphrased an 1883 speech when he addressed his troops. By whom? I don't know. The point is, there is nothing glorious in having one of the last pre-war Russian motor infantry companies that was still combat-effective destroyed in a pointless battle for a pointless town. Also, earlier claims of a small Russian advance to the sparkling wine factory were inaccurate. PMC Wagner also led an advance on Bakhmut, but remained blocked along the defensive line established by Ukraine on the M3 highway. Military expert Zhdanov suggested Ukraine may need to fall back on their second line of defense because the destruction of a bridge late last week is making supplying Ukrainian troops difficult. Russian troops tried to flank Ukrainian defensive positions again by advancing toward Pithorodne, but made no progress. Wagner also attempted to advance on Zaitseve, the one southeast of Bakhmut, and remained stuck along the village's southern edge. PMC Wagner continued their attempts to capture Kudyumivka. Once again, Yevgeny Prigozhin's bank account was thrilled, while the line of conflict didn't change. The 1st Army Corps of the DNR 3rd Brigade continued attempts to advance on Mayorsk and found it was much easier to get to the train station when they still honored the Minsk II agreement. In northeast Donetsk and Luhansk, we updated the Russian objective to include integrating the oblast into the Russian Federation, along with holding current defensive lines and controlling insurgency. 
the situation for Russian forces in northeastern Donetsk and southeastern Kharkiv continues to deteriorate. Russian defensive lines northeast of Lehman and east of the Oskil Reservoir are in collapse. Before we get into that, though, an errors and omissions here. We have misidentified the BARS-13, a Russian military reserve unit holding defense of Drobosheve, as part of the Russian Imperial Movement and their fighting arm, the Russian Imperial Legion. The Russia's Legion unit name is unfortunately very similar to the Imperial Legion, a designated terrorist organization. Adding to the fog of war, the Russia Legion and Imperial Legion were both involved in the Russian defense of Izum, and both retreated at roughly the same time. We appreciate your understanding, and we sincerely apologize to the members of the Bars 13 and their family members for conflating them with a designated white supremacist neo-Nazi terrorist organization. They are soldiers, and the truth matters. Artillery fire is increasing in Lehman as the so-called Donetsk People's Republic, or DNR, tries to show normalcy in the Russian-occupied stronghold. A video showed ongoing voting for the sham referendum. If you have Telegram, you should watch it. Especially the part where someone puts an entire wad of ballots into the box. Lehman may still be relatively peaceful, but it is far from life going on as usual. Bars 13, a.k.a. the Russia Legion, reported that Drobosheva is in a technical encirclement, with Ukrainian forces now north, west, and south of the village, and the Drobosheve Stavki Zarich G-Lock, which is a ground line of communication or supply line, under total fire control of Ukrainian artillery. Pro-Russian mill bloggers have reported that Ukrainian forces were operating in the woods west of Lehman for days. The serial critic of the Kremlin FSB colonel and war criminal Strelkov alluded to the advantages the forests are providing Ukrainian forces. A video released today showed Ukrainian special forces ambushing a Russian convoy in a forested area in, supposedly, Donetsk, but it didn't provide enough information for geolocation. The units involved were highly disciplined and demonstrated NATO-style tactics. The video is worth a minute and 15 seconds of your time, and as with the other videos we've mentioned, we link to it in our full situation report on Patreon. Let's shift to assessment for a minute here. Our previous assessment that Ukrainians' forces' advances north and northeast of Lehman would push Russian artillery out of range to effectively support Lehman was accurate. With fire control reportedly established east of Drobosheve, it is highly likely the Lehman Zarich Road is also cut off. If Ukraine captures Drobosheve and advances to Stavki, Lehman will be a technical encirclement. If the Russia Legion continues to hold, Ukrainian forces will almost certainly press for a complete encirclement by advancing south from Zelena Dolina. Now, we're not violating OPSEC. It's pretty clear looking at a map. On the subject of Zelena Dolina, the Ukrainian 25th Airborne Brigade blasted Russian positions in the village with rockets fired by MLRS. Pro-Russian sources claim that elements of the 20th CAA launched a counteroffensive against the Ukrainian advance and were able to recapture Nov and Karpivka. Okay, some assessment here. Nov is possible, but Karpivka is highly unlikely. The claim is likely rooted in truth, which is to say Russian truth. The Russian MOD accepts so-called photo reports as proof of battlefield success. 
Russian commanders are given ultimatums to achieve goals by a set deadline. In a functional military, a commander can explain why the goal isn't achievable and what resources they need. In the top-down Russian command and control structure, that's not acceptable. It is very likely a reconnaissance squad was ordered to get as deep as possible behind the Ukrainian advance and secure a photo report showing great success on the battlefield. The photo report of a squad of soldiers standing in front of a sign or building becomes proof. What happened, though, is they took the picture as quickly as possible, sometimes under fire, and ran for their lives. This is why we've seen repeated claims for days, sometimes weeks, of a village or town captured, with a picture or short video clip as proof, and then continue to hear reports of fighting even after its alleged capture. The best recent example of the use of photo reports is Pisky. Do you remember Pisky? Now, we don't believe our counterparts are intentionally spreading misinformation. It is ingrained in them to trust their sources. Further, questioning those sources publicly goes beyond a career-limiting move. It could literally be hazardous to their health. Ukrainian forces continue to advance, breaching the Kharkiv administrative border and reaching the Luhansk administrative border at Novimir and Novomikhailivka. We'll talk about the advance into Kharkiv in our Kharkiv segment. A reliable third-party source reported that Ukrainian forces attempted to liberate Zolotarivka, but were unsuccessful and suffered heavy losses. Units reportedly with PMC Wagner continued positional fighting around Spirna in the direction of the Verknokamyanka oil refinery. There are unconfirmed reports that a Russian train carrying recently mobilized Russian troops into Ukraine was destroyed by Ukrainian special operation forces in Luhansk. A third-party source we consider reliable also reported on the incident. Just a quick editor's note, the photo from the primary source is not of the incident, but a file photo. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. Our team of journalists, researchers, and analysts is funded by readers, listeners, and viewers just like you. To support independent journalism, please consider becoming a patron. You can find us on patreon.com at Malcontent News. Moving on to the Kharkiv region, Russian sources were surprisingly candid about the crumbling defensive line on the east bank of the Oskil River. They reported that Ukrainian forces had secured the bridgehead at Ryanikivka and advanced to the town of Khorobivka and the railroad tracks in western Tavilshanka. Ukrainian forces are expanding the bridgehead at Kupyansk, advancing north to Senkivka and south to Novoosinov. Ukrainian forces are preparing to advance on Liman Pershi, which would link the Dovorichna Hryanikivka and the Kupyansk bridgeheads and create a 31-kilometer-long front on the east side of the Oskil. Once that is achieved, the P-66 highway, a critical Russian G-lock, would be in the range of MLRS and Excalibur shells fired from M777 and 155mm self-propelled artillery howitzers. Ukrainian forces maintained control of Petropavlivka to the east, severing the P-79 highway. In Russia-occupied Tabaivka, half an artillery battery unit was obliterated by Ukrainian counter-battery fire. The accuracy of the strikes indicates that they were hit by drone-directed artillery using NATO-provided Excalibur shells, which are GPS-guided, or possibly HIMARS rockets, due to the degree of total destruction. 
Pro-Russian sources reported that Ukraine is using Excalibur shells and HIMARS for counterbattery. Ukrainian forces advancing north of Donetsk liberated Piskiratkivsky, according to the Borova City Council. Ukrainian national police are already controlling the settlement, and humanitarian aid was handed out to the residents. Based on the policies of the GSAFU on announcing the liberation of settlements, and because national police have moved in, Ukrainian forces have almost certainly advanced further north and east. Ukrainian forces captured a Russian MTLB IFV towing a ZU-23-2 23mm autocannon anti-aircraft gun in an undisclosed location in eastern Kharkiv. To the north in the Chernihivin Sumy region, Dmitro Zhivitsky, Sumy Oblast administrative and military governor, reported the Hromadas of Shalahin, Krasnopilia, Bilopilia, and Seridina Buda were attacked by Russian forces located across the international border. The most significant provocation was near Shalahin. A Russian helicopter fired six unguided rockets into the community, knocking out electrical power. That was followed by mortar and artillery fire and then a small border skirmish with light arms fire exchanged. The other settlements were hit by artillery and mortar fire. To the south, in the Black Sea, Crimea, and Odessa region, Ukraine has improved air defense around Odessa, adapting to the ongoing Shahed-136 loitering drone attacks. Three drones were launched toward the city and intercepted by air defenses. Let's talk about developments theater-wide and outside Ukraine. Once again, it has been not a single day since the Kremlin threatened to use nuclear weapons. We were expecting to write how Moscow appeared to walk back Sergei Lavrov's comments today, but oh no! Dmitry Medvedev, deputy chairman of the Russian Security Council, had to throw a hundred-kiloton hand grenade into what appeared to have been a moment of sanity, saying, quote, Let's imagine that Russia is forced to use the most formidable weapons against the Ukrainian regime, which has committed a large-scale act of aggression that is dangerous for the very existence of our state. I believe that NATO will not directly interfere in the conflict, even in this scenario. After all, the security of Washington, London, and Brussels for the North Atlantic Alliance is much more important than the fate of an unnecessary Ukraine. End quote. Okay, assessment time. This is the mutually assured destruction-instability paradox defined. Medvedev said the quiet part out loud. There is no need to dig your backyard bunker, but if you're looking for a paper bag to breathe into right now, purchasing a hand-cranked AM-FM shortwave radio that supports USB charging wouldn't be a bad idea. See? Now don't you feel better? Before Medvedev's statement... White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre stated that the United States has not, quote, yet seen any evidence that the Russian Federation is preparing to use nuclear weapons. So let's talk about other things. Russian Colonel Boris Totikov, the commander of the missile and artillery units of the 35th CAA, was killed in action in Ukraine during the week of September 19th. Russia has lost 1,210 military officers in their regular armed forces since February 24th. Tatakov was the 35th full colonel killed in action in Ukraine. Wagner Group telegram channel Greyzone lamented the death of mercenary commander Alexei Nagin, who was killed on September 20th. 
In their online eulogy, they speculated a movie would soon be made, highlighting his life. Seventeen United States congresspersons wrote a letter to Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin demanding that the issues around releasing Gray Eagle combat drones to Ukraine be resolved as quickly as possible. The United States initially planned to provide Ukraine with the drones, but backed off when security issues were raised. Ukraine's commander-in-chief of its armed forces, Valery Zaluzhny, doesn't believe that victory in Ukraine will be victory, saying, quote, Knowing what I know about the Russians from hearsay, our victory will not be the final. Our victory will be an opportunity to catch our breath and prepare for the next war with the Russian Federation. End quote. In Chelyabinsk, Russia, a train was spotted carrying KRAZ model truck chassis built in the 1960s. The trucks are a copy of Studebaker chassis sent to Russia during World War II by the United States through the Lend-Lease Act. Russian unaffiliated journalist Alexander Sladkov lamented online that Russia is losing its artillery advantage in Ukraine because it is outdated and inaccurate. The newest artillery and mortar system in country in Ukraine used by Russia was introduced 40 years ago. Although Russia has laser-guided artillery shells, they require a target to be painted by an Orlan 30 drone. According to Sladkov, no more Orlan 30 drones are left. They've all been shot down. Some assessment here. This issue is compounded by a lack of maintenance and worn barrels, which adds to inaccuracy. There have been numerous pictures that we've shared in earlier reports of banana-peeled Russian artillery pieces that suffered catastrophic failure from overuse. After months of denial that NATO weapons are technically superior, the Russian mill-blogging community is concluding that Russia is at a technical disadvantage that can no longer be overcome simply by brute force. Sladkov was looking for someone to blame. We recommend Russian oligarchs who have pillaged the Russian military and its budget. Speaking of pillaging the Russian military budget, we recommend watching a video we link to showing the performance of Russian, quote, Kevlar helmets. A Ukrainian soldier demonstrates how he can collapse the helmet with his foot in a couple of blows and can stab a combat knife through it. Before you dismiss this as fake, in an earlier report we shared a video of a Russian soldier bashing in the same type of combat helmet with his head. Soldiers with the DNR, or Luhansk People's Republic, that's LNR, made a video from the trenches explaining that they were just dumped into the woods without food, water, medicine, or bedding. Just a rifle, ammunition, and a bayonet. There is no commander, no orders, and no radio. They had come under a mortar attack which motivated them to make the recording, and they didn't know what to do as shells landed just 10 meters away. But hey, it's all going according to plan. Speaking of going according to plan, let's talk about Russian mobilization. Russian mobilization is not going well. Which is to say, it's going as well as we previously assessed. We stated in earlier reports that Russia couldn't mobilize if it wanted to because of internal rot around the logistic systems required to activate hundreds of thousands of troops. Lead Russia propagandist Vladimir Solovyov was very unhappy with Russian state media after one of his journalists was not allowed to leave Russia for a planned holiday. The reporter, who is 35, was told he could not depart because he is of conscription age. 
Solovyov called for overzealous commissariats to be shot less than 24 hours after an overzealous commissariat was shot. The commissariat did not survive. You know what? Let's shift to assessment and discuss this. Solovyov and his ilk advocated for war. Then, after a string of embarrassing military defeats, advocated for mobilization. Now, when it knocks on their door, it becomes a problem. There's a word for it that I'm grasping for. I'm... what is it? It's hypocrites. The word is hypocrites. Multiple videos have emerged showing the condition conscripts are kept in. One video showed a crumbling barracks with thin bedding, almost all the plumbing and fixtures stripped from the building, and PVC piping on the outside walls to bring water in. Another video showed a cramped barracks with a newer plywood and pressboard interior. The outside was more prisoner-of-war camp than military induction. The barracks were a jumble of stuff, with some recruits lacking even a thin piece of bedding. It would be enough to make a United States drill instructor want to go knife-hand in every possible direction. If you don't know what knife-hand is, ask a veteran and I'm sure they'd be happy to show you. Another video had a female drill instructor explaining to a group of recruits that when they arrive in Ukraine, they can't make fires to keep warm, as it will mean certain death. She then went on to tell them that they would need to get their own sleeping bags. When a conscript inquired why, she told them the military had already given them everything they would get. In the background, another conscript mumbles, quote, We were told we would receive all this gear. End quote. Okay, but it gets worse. She then explains that the Russian army doesn't have enough tourniquets or first aid kits, and they will have to buy their own. When they explain there are no more tourniquets in the pharmacies, she recommends asking family members and rating the first aid kits of military vehicles. It just goes downhill from there, with her providing medical misinformation on how to treat gunshot wounds. At the Georgia-Russian border, where backups have grown to 36 hours long, Georgian officials decided to allow pedestrians to cross the border. It created a rush of people running to get in line. The situation became so bad that Russian troops arrived at the checkpoint and set up a mobile conscription station to intercept men attempting to flee their civic duty to serve the state. Now, before you think this is a complete disaster, keep in mind there are thousands of conscripts willingly going to duty. Those videos aren't sexy and don't get clicks, so you have to look for them. In Murmansk, for example, conscripts boarded a gleaming train while an orchestra played a farewell. We had assessed that the claims by the Kremlin that conscripted troops would receive military training that lasted for weeks were falsehoods, and unlike those claims, our assessment was accurate. Conscripts assigned to the 1st Tank Regiment are receiving no training and are shipping out to Kherson on September 29th. But everything is fine, and everything is going according to plan. In our War Crimes and Human Rights segment, we discuss events that might be upsetting to hear about. There is no graphic detail in today's report, but if you're sensitive to descriptions of human rights abuses, please feel free to skip ahead to the next segment. Timestamps are in the description. A video shows 21-year-old Semyonov Grigory Vitalievich, who served in the Russian Strategic Rocket Forces before being transferred to the 12th Tank Regiment, trembling on the ground. Vitalievich involuntarily surrendered, right, because he could get 10 years in prison if he didn't 
involuntarily surrender. So, for the record, Vitalievich was in a hopeless situation and was forced to surrender involuntarily. Some assessment here. Russia's armed forces are so degraded, they've stripped troops from their strategic missile forces that manage the maintenance, protection, and deployment of their strategic nuclear weapons capabilities. Take all the time you need to think on that one. On the subject of prisoners of war, Aidan Aslan has returned to Twitter. He shared two photos today, one of himself about an hour before voluntarily surrendering, and another taken by Russian troops two days later. There were some violations of the Geneva Convention. In Kherson Oblast, the resistance reported that 12 people had disappeared after being detained in Novokhovka. They were taken away with bags over their heads, accused of holding pro-Ukrainian thoughts, failing to support the, quote, new government, and refusing Russian humanitarian aid. In Russia over the weekend, hackers broke into Russian cable TV again and put Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky's speech on replay on every channel. In his speech, Zelensky outlined Ukraine's commitment to Russian soldiers, promising them fair treatment and protection for surrendering. In geopolitical news, Russia detained a Japanese consul in Vladivostok, accusing them of spying. FSB agents grabbed Motoki Tatsunori, reportedly gagged him and put a bag over his head, and questioned him for hours. Tokyo has lodged a, quote, strong protest about the detention and signaled it might retaliate, according to Japan's chief cabinet secretary, Hirokazu Matsuno. Moving on to economic news. Sort of. Sorry, we weren't sure where to put this story. Nord Stream AG reported that the Nord Stream 1 pipeline has two leaks, and Nord Stream 2 has one in what they called a, quote, unprecedented event on the floor of the Baltic Sea. Sweden issued a maritime advisory because the leaks are severe enough to impact navigation in the Baltic Sea. Nord Stream AG had no timetable on when the pipelines would be fixed. The flow of natural gas has been shut off on Nord Stream 1 for almost a month, and Nord Stream 2 was never activated. The ruble declined, with the exchange rate at 59 for one U.S. dollar. Crude oil prices declined slightly, with WTI trading at $77 a barrel and Brent at $85 a barrel. United States RBOB wholesale gasoline on the spot market was stable, climbing slightly to $2.42 a gallon or $0.63 a liter. Chicago SRW wheat futures were almost unchanged, up just pennies to $8.73 a bushel for December 2022 delivery. And that's what we know. Join me again tomorrow for more updates. Until then, stay safe, everyone. You've been listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. To help keep us independent, please consider providing financial support by becoming a patron. Want on-demand news in your hand? Download the Google News app and make Malcontent News one of your favorites to receive breaking news updates. Thank you for listening.